This week on the Backtable Podcast. Try and learn something about everything. If you look at my desk, you see The Lancet, you see JAMA, you see New England Journal. I know what's going on in my field. So try and learn something about everything, but then learn everything about something. If you are known as the very best at something, regardless of the competition, they're going to come knocking down your door. So go with your gut. Go with what you're passionate about, and you or your chairperson, you will find a way to do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Ranjit Ramasamy, your host for today's Backtable Urology podcast. I'm so happy and excited to be joined by one of the pioneers in microsurgery, Dr. Mark Goldstein. Dr. Goldstein is a professor of urology and microsurgery at the Weill Cornell Medical College, where I had the pleasure of training with him for six years when I was a resident at Cornell. Dr. Goldstein, thank you very much for joining us and very happy to have you and really honored to interview you on this podcast on the history of male fertility microsurgery and how all of this started. So very happy for you to join us today. It's a pleasure, Rancha. I'm happy to be here. I would have to say I do have some misgivings about now being relegated to the history of microsurgery. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I feel I'm still contributing, still advancing. Absolutely. Still getting better, actually, uh, at everything uh, that I'm doing here. But yeah, this is something that, that's interested me for a long time. Start with the history of microsurgery, you know, that, right. that actually was developed by the ENT doctors back in the 1921, an ENT doctor by the name of Nyland from Sweden was the first one to use an operating uh, microscope. He used a monocular dissecting microscope for a surgery of the inner ear. And then it was introduced to ophthalmology uh, where it's been, you know, used for a long time in 1946. And then the first actual reproductive use of the operating microscope was uh, not in urology. It was in uh, gynecology. Uh, Garcia, who actually I had the pleasure of once meeting at a meeting, and uh, he in 1972 performed the first fallopian tube in astomosis. Now, of course, the fallopian tube has an inner diameter of one to three millimeters. So compared to the vast, which is 300 microns in diameter, and for comparison, the human hair is 100 microns. As you'd probably know, Ranjith, there, there are two biological rulers I like all of my fellows and residents to know about. One is a human hair, which is 100 microns, and the other is an RBC, which is 6 microns, which is about the same as the length of a sperm head. So I always like to have a little contamination of the specimen that I'm looking for sperm with a few RBCs, because if I see something that's oval and it's the same length as an RBC, then I know it's probably a sperm head without a tail. Also around 1972, that's when the Zeiss company started manufacturing the first binocular microscopes, which we pretty much use now. The first uh, use of microsurgery in urology was actually by Sherman Silver and Earl Owen. And um, the two of them fought for years. Earl died a couple of years ago. Sherman is still alive. But they used to fight about who was the first one to do microsurgical vasovasostomy. Now, Silber was actually a fellow of Earl Owen. Earl Owen was one of the pioneer microsurgeons in Australia, and he was the head of something called the Microsearch Foundation. I'm not sure if that still exists. I'll have to look that up. The Microsearch Foundation. 
I think he died about five years ago, but he did the first face transplants, arm replants, thumb replants, things like that. He hired uh, Sherman Silber, or he didn't hire him. Sherman Silber came to him as a fellow, and Silber's project was to transplant kidneys in rats. And that's how Silber learned microsurgery. And Earl Owen said he got the idea to use it for reversals. Silber said he gave Earl Owen the idea, but they both published their first papers the same year. I give them equal credit. Nice. How did you get into this, Dr. Goldstein? So you're a urology resident, and then I understand you have some some relationship, and you were in the Air Force at some point, and, and I would have expected you between the Air Force and urology to become a trauma surgeon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somewhere you said, no, this is not for me, and I'm going to go do microsurgery, and, and how, did you, how did you get into this? I actually read a paper that Sherman Silber wrote in which he uh, successfully auto-transplanted a testicle from the abdomen down into the scrotum in a testicle that couldn't be brought down by the classic techniques. And we know that the Fowler-Stevens technique, where you intentionally ligate the artery, results in atrophy of the testicle about half the time. And soon thereafter, he reported transplantation of a testicle from one identical twin who lost both testicles. I'm not sure what the cause of the loss was, but he had an identical twin brother. So Silver performed the transplantation since it was isogenic. There was no issue with rejection. And and I read this article and I said, gee, this is exciting. And I told my chairman of urology, the late, great Keith Waterhouse, that I'd love to go visit Silver and see what he was doing. So he actually sat down at his desk and wrote a personal check for me. And I I drove out to St. Louis and I shadowed Silver. I was the first person Silver ever allowed to watch him operate. Right. And actually, he never allowed anyone to watch him after that either. I was very excited by what I saw. I came back to my residency and I said, microsurgery, this is something that has a great future in our field. And after I finished my residency, Waterhouse suggested I find a fellowship, but there were no fellowships in male infertility or microsurgery at that time. Actually, Lipschultz and I both started our fellowships the same year, 1984, which is two years after I So Waterhouse said, well, why don't you go to Rockefeller University? He lived in Sutton Place South. He knew about Rockefeller. I've heard about it. So I went there and I found uh, Wayne Barden, who is an endocrinologist who specialized in it. And uh, I told him that I have an idea to transplant testicles in rats. And my main purpose was to learn microsurgery, to be self-taught. But he thought of a project that would be able to advance uh, our understanding of the endocrinology. You know, inhibin was not, we didn't know about inhibin back then. And the idea was to uh, castrate a group of rats, isogenic rats, so there was no problem with rejection. And then after the rats are castrated, FSH, of course, becomes elevated. And the idea was, is there anything produced by the testicle besides testosterone that would control FSH? So one group of rats, I handmade pellets filled with testosterone and implanted them in the back of the rats. And the length of the implant determines the testosterone levels. In the other group, after castration and letting the FSH go up, I would transplant a testicle from an isogenic rat. And testosterone would only partially restore FSH to normal. But the transplants, if they function properly, and I could tell because I could see blood coming out the vas after the transplant, which is the most exciting thing you could ever imagine, they suppressed FSH back to normal. And that was the first indirect evidence that there was such a thing as inhibin. And that's sort of how I I got interested. That's awesome. So then what did you do after? So now that you started this fellowship program, it's one of the first in the country, and this is the first training program. 
And then I know your first paper on microsurgical varicoselectomy was in 1992. So what happened in the span of eight to 10 years? What were you doing? How were you trying to craft your skill? How were you trying to define the field? And, and what happened in that span after like I started the fellowship? Now I'm actually going to pioneer this operation in the specialty. Well, we have to go back a little bit because sure. because there was no training. I had to teach myself microsurgery and I had no assistance. So I developed all these systems for being able to do the microsurgery myself, which is why I, I don't need the assistant to cut the sutures for me. I developed a little system with a pedal on it for irrigating when I did the transplant. So that's how I learned the microsurgery. And I started out by doing vasectomy reversals. And I started out with the four-stitch 9-0 sutures that Silber and Earl Owen introduced. And Silber and Earl Owen reported an 80% patency rate with that. But I, I realized from the transplants, we could probably do better. I started using 10 O's instead of 9 O's. I went to eight sutures, which turned out to be too many, back to six. With this technique, as you know, when you have a, a long-term vasectomy, the testicular end becomes markedly dilated, and the abdominal end is really tiny. So there's a big discrepancy, sometimes a one to five discrepancy. So that's where I developed this method of marking out the two sides of the vas. Uh, what I call the microdot technique. If I find good sperm in the vas and the vas is healthy and good blood supply and healthy tissue, I got a 99% return of sperm rate. So I was able to improve those results. Microsurgery for varicoceles, I actually was first reported by Jack Dwash at the Ferdinand C. Valentine Essay Contest in 1983. Joel Mama in New Jersey and I used to meet at the meetings and talk all the time about how logic would dictate that it's much better to preserve the main blood supply to the testicle. Actually, it was, it was Peter Schlegel who taught me that way of describing it. I was a brash young punk okay. back then, and I used to get up at, well, now I'm a brash old punk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I used to get up at meetings and scream at Amalar and Dubin, how can you tie off the main artery to the testicle? You got to be a moron to do that. But it was Schlegel who came up with the much better way of saying it, that ligating the main artery to the testicle is unlikely to enhance testicular function. Well, Joel Mamar and I had been talking about it for years. Jack Dwash presented my first 12 patients at the Valentine Essay Contest at 83. Joel Mamar then presented, I think, 32 patients he published in Fertility and Sterility in 1985. And uh, I said, well, since Mamar already described the early technique, I decided, let me wait till I have a big series. So I waited until I had 692, and then I published my paper. I Actually, I got the idea for the title from Pat Walsh. Wow. Remember Pat Walsh's paper? Yeah. His paper was a nerve-sparing technique of radical prostatectomy. So I called mine microsurgical varicoselectomy and artery and lymphatic sparing technique. I got the idea from Pat Walsh. What a lot of people don't know do you know what the name of Pat Walsh's first book was? No. Infertility in the Male. He was a male infertility specialist before he ever became a prostate specialist. He got interested in the prostate because it was an angin-sensitive organ. And he did a fellowship uh, at the University of uh, Texas with Gene Wilson, who, like my mentor, Wayne Barden, was an endocrinologist interested in the endocrinology of the testis. But that was his first book. In fact, he also was the first author of the first paper on attempted embolization of varicoceles. And he was the one that showed that on venography that 10% of failed varicoceleectomies were due to scrotal collaterals. 
which is why I, I always advocated delivery of the testis, which is still controversial. It takes a little bit longer, but I'm convinced it has resulted, you know, my failure rate's under one, about 1% or less. And I, I'm convinced that, you know, I do so many, I've done 5,200 a year. So even a small increase in the failure rate immediately becomes very noticeable. Anyway, after finishing um, the fellowship that I did with Wayne Barden, I started the fellowship at Cornell in 1984 and began training fellows and residents. And, and that's sort of how, how, how our fellowship started. And I basically have always taken one fellow every two years. And then more recently, we started taking, you know, one per year. And my, you know, my former fellows, Peter Chan was the, the one who basically developed the two-stitch longitudinal inception technique. Berger was the first one who described the interception technique, which is a major advance. As you know, six needles laying around in a, in a tiny little tubule, you go crazy trying to get them sorted out. <laughs> and I'm, I'm convinced the main advantage of the two-stitch technique, with only four needles, you're much less likely to get confused. <laughs> right. So, you know, you talked about the nano sutures that Silver was using, and then you said, oh, then I, and I liked 10 how did that happen? Did you like call the company and say, hey, I need sutures smaller than this. I need the double arm suture because it helps. Yes. How, how did that happen? It's not just, it just didn't happen overnight. No, no, it didn't happen overnight. I, I realized that when using Silber's technique, you had to put a dilator into the vas and then put the stitch outside in and make sure that you'd pull it out. Every time you did that, you instrumented the very delicate mucosa. So I realized that if I put all the needles from the inside out, it would minimize ever having to touch the mucosa. So minimal handling. Also having double arm sutures, placing them inside out, you're always placing them inside out. So my, if it's my fellow working with me, he puts in his forehand, I put in my forehand, and it just improves the accuracy. When I started putting those micro dots, uh, all I had to do is tell the resident or fellow, you don't have to think about where to put it. Put the needle through the dot. It separates the planning from the placement. If you're going to build a bridge, and when you're doing a vasovasostomy, or a, that's what you're doing, you're building a bridge, right? If you're going to build a bridge, you don't call the contractor and say, build me the bridge. You call the architect to make a blueprint for you. So you make a blueprint, then you follow the blueprint. So the concept behind the micro dot technique was make a blueprint first then you don't have to think about anything but getting your needle through the dot. So it separates the planning from the placement. And I think that's the reason that the accuracy is significantly better. That's great. So 1992 happens, you write your first paper on microsurgical varicoselectomy. It's been 30 years now since you've published that one paper. What do you think have been some of the major advances that have happened in 30 years and things that you're most proud of and things you're like, wow, I never envisioned these changes to have happened in the last 30 years? Well, the most common complication of non-microsurgical varicocelectomy was hydroseal. Right. In my own practice, before I started using the microscope, it was about 10%. And if you look at the general literature, it's about 10% that required, that got big enough to require a second operation. The first 1,500 cases using the microscope, I had five hydroseals out of 1,500, which was a dramatic improvement. But then under the microscope, looking at the veins, I noticed that there was a lot of lymphatics in the adventitia surrounding those veins. So I found that by grabbing the vein, cleaning it off a little bit, off the adventitia till I have an absolutely bare vein, and then cleaning off all that adventitia, since I've been cleaning those veins like that, I've not had a single hydroseal 
in the last 3,500, not one. Nice. That's, that's one small advance. You know, I, you have to have two things I learned. One, you have to have the artery as clean as a baby's ass. You've seen the pictures from my books. Not a single, not a single vein. All the veins communicate with each other at the level of the pinniform plexus. So if you miss even one vein, then others will dilate up. And that's the other thing that's changed. I used to do the dissection, find the arteries, put vessel loops around them, deliver the testis. If there are any big veins in the gubernaculum, I'd ligate those. And then I pulled back the testicle and close. okay? Right. What I found is in men, especially those men that have large gubernacular veins, I started running the cord again before closing, and I've been shocked at how often I found veins that now have enlarged significantly because the gubernacular veins have been dilated. Right. So by running the cord again, I've been shocked at how often I find veins, and that would have later caused you know late failures. And late failures, often you know you don't initially see a late failure. You have the patient stand up, you have them cough, you don't feel an impulse. But I tell them, stand for a while. And you see in these late failures, you see the veins slowly fill. The cord becomes turgid. Right. And when they lie down, it collapses. If you examine yourself or patients you know don't have varicoceles, there should be absolutely no difference in the way the cord feels upright and supine. No difference at all. So if you have a patient when he's supine, the cord is absolutely flat. But when he stands and slowly becomes more and more turgid, even if there's no impulse, have the cord in your finger, keep it in your hand, have him lie down. And if it completely collapses, that's the smallest detectable, what I'd call grade one varicocele. And those men are likely to have continuing enlargement as time goes on and they get late failures. I think by rerunning the cord again, I've decreased the late failure rate and increased the durability. What are some of the challenges you faced in the last, like, oh my gosh, these were all I thought were insurmountable barriers. These were like big challenges. But somehow I've been able to overcome these to build a program as solid as now, about 40 years now at Cornell, one of the academic meccas of male fertility. So what were some of the challenges you faced? And, and give us give us advice to some young people who are listening to this and also to people like me, like you're going to face some of these challenges, but these are all things that you should do and watch out for. And these are things you could do to overcome them. Yeah, well, I admittedly, and you will, having operated with me enough, know that in the operating room, and I try and limit it to the operating room, and on the pretty extreme end of obsessive compulsive disorder, which you, which I could tell all of you out there is very good for your patients, but it's not good. It's not good for your wife or children or partners. So try and limit it, limit it to the operating room. There's no question that the more OCD you are in the operating room the better you're going to be and the better results you're going to be. The other thing I've learned, the key to success in our field is patience and persistence. You know, one of my other mottos is never give up. Just a few weeks ago, after 40 years, I did the most difficult case in my whole career. It was a patient who'd had a mesh repair of inguinal hernias when he was 25, and he had an attempt, and he was azospermic, he had a normal, normal testis, highly positive anti-sperm antibodies. It was clear he was obstructed. He went, I won't name names, and uh, was operated on by their specialist who found the vas ended in the middle of the mesh and felt it was not going to be possible to reconstruct. The couple, for religious reasons, 
refused to do IVF, which is what I strongly recommended, but they would not do IVF and the only possibility. And it took, I think, two years to finally get permission from his insurance to have him come to me because he'd had, they kept telling him to go back, but they'd already had a failure and the doctor wouldn't do anything. I explored him. I found the end of the vas. One of the things that the previous surgeon neglected to do, the first thing you do, she made vasotomies as usual. She injected and saw where he was obstructed. But the first thing you do when you open the vas is ask yourself and look, are there sperm in the vas? Because if there's no sperm in the vas and they have epididymal obstruction, there's absolutely no point in even looking for the inguinal obstruction. You can't do pair of an obstruction, the epididymis and another obstruction because there's no blood supply right. in between. So you, right. so you have to be very conscious of the anatomy and the blood supply. The vas gets no blood supply from the surrounding cream master. From below, all of its blood supply is the vasal branch of the epididymal artery. From above, it comes off usually the superior inferior vesicle artery. There's nothing surrounding it. So you can't do two anastomoses in the same vas. So she never bothered to look. But fortunately, she sent the end of the vas that was diving into the mesh. I'm not sure why, but she sent a little piece that looked like there was a granuloma to pathology, and they identified sperm. So I knew there had to be sperm, at least that side. And the other good thing is I went in and we explored the patient. It took me 11 hours. I went to the second side first, and I pulled the vas up, and I found there was sperm on that side. So sperm on both sides, on the positive side, and I told her this, her closure of the vasotomies were good. She didn't obstruct them below because if she had, it would have been hopeless. And if you, even in mesh, you never, never just transect it. Always pull up. It will, it will always lead you to the other side. And I found the other side. And on the opposite side where she actually had cut it off, I just looked exactly where one side, and I found both ends eventually and it was able to do a successful VV. So after 11, 11 years was the hardest case I ever did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the message there is patience and persistence. Never give up. That's awesome. You used to go to Journal Club, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. Okay. I hadn't done Journal Club in 20 years, I guess. I was asked to do Journal Club last week. And typically they ask us to give a couple of papers on our field right. that you're supposed to read. And then we come there and we talk and we did it in person. I guess they expected me to give papers on infertility, but I didn't. I don't know if you if you ever met uh, Dr. Vaughan, Darakot Vaughan. I did. You did. Okay. Well, one of Vaughan's heroes was Sir William Osler, the famous, probably considered the greatest physician in the history of American medicine. Started out at McGill, where Peter Chan, my former fellow, and Armand Zini, my former fellow, are now, and they have a fellowship, and then went from McGill to Hopkins and Penn and then finished his career at Oxford. And I, you know, his main thing was compassion, compassion for the patient. He was a brilliant diagnostician. Absolutely. He, wa he, he wasn't perfect, though. There's a story he told a patient who came to see him. He went all over the country, and actually the peak of his career was making a million dollars a year in today's income, no taxes. People paid anything, but he also took care of the poor. Right. Uh, he took care of anybody who needed to be taken care of. Brilliant diagnostician before MRIs. You know, we had x-rays, but before all the fancy. So he examined a patient and told the patient, you better get your affairs in order. You have a very bad sarcoma or something like that, and you better get your affairs in order. And then a urologist came in, put a catheter in the bladder, and the tumor disappeared. 
So even he wasn't perfect. Right. <laughs> anyway, instead of instead of giving him papers in my field, I gave him a bunch of papers about Sir William Osler. Wow. And you know, some of my favorite aphorisms were Osler's. And my favorite of all time, probably told you this, is do the kind thing and do it first. Right. Do the kind thing and do it first. And the other thing, I don't know if it was Osler, but certainly somebody like Osler said, the key to patient care is in caring about the patient. So those are some of the, the Oslerisms that I like the best. To me, the biggest challenge right now in American medicine, it was published in New England Journal about two years ago, another big article in The Lancet, 50%, five zero of all medical practices today are owned by hedge funds or for-profit companies. Right. They're not going to let me take, you know, I spend an hour with a new patient, a half hour. Right. They're not going to let us do that. I am passionate now about figuring out how we can take control back. My late father was a school teacher. The teachers union was very powerful. My wife, Barbara, the union for the uh, employees at City University of New York. I'm a Brooklyn College graduate. My family on my father's side, all major union officials. I am advocating that doctors should unionize. Only 10% of doctors now are unionized, and most of them are residents and fellows. One of the main issues that people have against doctors being in unions is that we can't strike. Patients will die, although, although people have, doctors have been gone on strike in, in France and Germany, and there's been no increase in patients' deaths. There was one death in Germany during a doctor strike years ago, and people point to that as the reason doctors shouldn't go on strike. Right. But I am not advocating for us to unionize for pay and benefits. I am advocating for us to unionize to get control back of how we practice medicine. That's the reason I'm advocating for that. There was an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, look at it, December 22nd, on how we can, what we can do to try and get control back of how we can practice medicine. A doctor from Stanford who is part of there, they have a center for medicine, practicing the best quality practice of medicine. And I've been communicating with him and and might even take a lead in that area. No, absolutely. I mean, there's actually a Wall Street Journal article today that talks about medical residents unionizing, but truly over pay and working conditions. And For residents, that's true. But I, I'm advocating us unionizing to get back control of how we practice medicine, right. how we can practice the best quality medicine. That's the major, the major thing, quality. As we're winding up here, Dr. Goldstein, I want you to give some advice about the young residents, young physicians as they go on into their careers, as they think about innovating, right? I feel like innovation is sort of dying in medicine, in urology, in infertility as, as a whole. You talked about a beautiful story of how you read a paper that sparked your interest and then your chair supported you to travel to St. Louis by car for all those hours and, and take time off. Whereas residency programs are now overcommitted. Residents are working all the time. There's more time to follow the rules and, and to stick to the regimen as opposed to think outside the box. And so talk to me about how how residents these days can still, despite all of the burdens of work, still try to innovate, still try to think about ideas to solve problems outside our given toolboxes and what sort of advice you have for them. You know, a lot of a lot of residents come to me and, and they're trying to decide what what to do a fellowship in, for example. Right. And I tell them, you know, take a pad, draw a line down the middle. On one side, write the pros and, and the other side, write the cons of this versus that. And then before you go to sleep, tear it up, go to sleep. And when you wake up, listen to your gut. Your gut's going to tell you what you're passionate about. 
Disregard what you think is going to be the best paying field. Disregard where you think is the best place to practice because there's the biggest demand. If you are the best at something, they're going to come knocking down your door. Thomas Huxley, who is the grandfather of Aldous Huxley, you've all heard of Aldous Huxley. Thomas Huxley was a contemporary of Charles Darwin. And one of the slides I, I use of one of his sayings is, try and learn something about everything. I think you all know, if you look at my desk, you see The Lancet, you see JAMA, you see New England Journal. I know what's going on in my field. So try and learn something about everything, but then learn everything about something. If you are known as the very best at something, regardless of the competition, they're going to come knocking down your door. So go with your gut, go with what you're passionate about, and you or your chairperson, you will find a way to do it. That's beautiful advice. After all these years, how do you stay so passionate about the field? You know, people talk about burnout. People talk about, you know, we need work-life balance and it's so important to keep everything together. But after 40 years, how are you still so passionate, even in a podcast? I love what I do. That's the main thing is I love what I do. Another nice thing is my patients are basically young, healthy men. They don't die. Also, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm passionate about having balance. I exercise. I've done 20 New York City marathons, 45 triathlons. I am extremely excited about turning 75 in March. I'm doing my first triathlon on March 26th as a 75-year-old, so I won't be competing against the 70-year-old young punks anymore. <laughs> so, and I am planning on, you know, reconstituting my urinary tract team. I used to run with all our residents. I'm, I'm going to get us back to that again. And the other thing, I learned this from my chairperson. He took a week off every month. And I have done this ever since I started as a, an attending in 1982. I take a week off every month. I don't bring work home with me. I don't bring papers to do. Everywhere else I do, you know, one of my mottos is I never go anywhere without my American Express card and a manuscript to work on. But not when I'm on vacation, not when I'm running. Uh, when I'm running, I'm out with my buddies and my residents and fellows. I'm just Mark, your running buddy. So you gotta, you got to find balance in your life. You've got to take time to take care of your health, and you've got to take time to be with your family, and, and, and that's got to be a priority. Because if you don't do that, you're not going to be able to do your best work. That's awesome. Well, this has been just an outstanding podcast, Dr. Goldstein. I mean, it's just, I've obviously listened to some of the stories, but some of them were certainly new and enlightening and so nice to just hear your voice, and most importantly, share your passion with all of the listeners. So... Really, thank you for having us on this podcast and really to all the listeners. I mean, Dr. Mark Goldstein, just what a wonderful pioneer and, and such a passionate and a, and a caring physician. So thank you all very much for joining us and, and happy to be here, Dr. Goldstein. Yeah, and Ranjith, you know, you, you are one of the graduates of our program that we are so proud of. You are one of now, one of the great innovators and, and researchers in the field. And we all are so proud of you and respectful of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Devante Del Brun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.